You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hi, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 50. 50 episodes of the Common Descent Podcast. Yeah, we're, we are making our way. And in fact, I think it is perfect that we're hitting episode 50, because this is also our first episode this year that we're recording in December, which means it's Christmas time. Oh, no. <laughs> you guys can't see You've it, but been... I, I put on a Santa hat. <laughs> Will has put on a Santa hat. Which just pushes all of my Grinch buttons. <laughs> I'll have you know, this recording is happening. It is barely the second week of December. <laughs> when this episode comes out, it will be barely the third week of December. You, what are you cut that joy out. What are you talking about? It's only 16 days till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you and your holiday mirth. I'll have none of this. <laughs> yeah. I can't actually wear the Santa hat with the headphones, which is, which is <laughs> yes. Take that <laughs> part of the. That just means I have to have to get some custom, <laughs> some custom headphones. <laughs> you have to paint your headphones red. And green. <laughs> oh, seasonal headphones. All right, dang it. Uh, <laughs> you know what, Patreon. You know what, your money's going to go toward. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's this episode about? So today's episode, we are talking, we've done a couple of location episodes. Today, we are doing Australia. <gasps> Let's throw another shrimp on the barbie. There you go. Authentic. <laughs> Authentic. <laughs> that was intentionally bad. That's a movie reference. Yes. <laughs> just, just in case anyone just was wondering. Just so you know. I could do better if I wanted to. We are doing an episode about Australia, the the. The geologic history and some of the fossil history. There's a lot to go over with Australia because it's been around for quite some time. So it's a cool place. As usual, we're going to have to do a a brief look into this island continent in the southern hemisphere. This episode was suggested by actually one of our patrons, Nils. So thank you for the Australia idea, Nils. Thank you very much. Now, before we get things started. Go over a few announcements, as we tend to do here at the beginning. The first announcement, as you mentioned last episode, we've had pretty consistently, which is awesome, with our Patreon, which provides all the fundings to keep this podcast a podcast. We have a ranking that if you donate money at a certain amount, you get your name shouted out here on the podcast episode. And today we have two new patrons with us, Sean and Colleen. Welcome to the Common Ascent. Welcome, welcome. One of those is a person that uh, used to work at the Great Fossil Site. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Whom I met down there and, and tells us that our podcast kept him company on his tr journey driving across the country. <laughs> that's awesome. That's fantastic. So, thanks for joining us, Sean. Yeah. And also Colleen, who I don't know, but I'm sure is awesome too. <laughs> so welcome, welcome. The only other bit of news we have is as... Many of you have already participated in. We had a Q&A put up to to ask for your cues so we could A. And we will be putting out a mailbag Q&A listener question special end of the year episode later this month. 
Yeah, right around the new year. Yes, to to really to in cap 2018 and hear what you're asking, hopefully give you the answers you're looking for. Indeed. And it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got a lot of cool questions. I had so much fun with the last one. I'm really looking forward to this one because now we we, we were completely floored with the last one. We were not prepared at all for (laughs) that. Yeah, now we're ready. Now we're excited and ready. Well, and this will come out around the same time as episode 51, which will be the very last episode of the year. Yeah. Been a good year. Sure has. Here's to 2019. 2019, here we come. But first, before that, and before we talk about Australia, we have to go over the news. As usual, we like to begin our episodes with a little look at recent science news, geology news, paleontology news, and other related newses, to keep us up to date and keep you up to date. And to start us off, I will turn things over to you, David. Well, hey, that's me. I have a bit of news that comes out of a little place you may have heard of called the Gray Fossil Site. I've been I've been told I should visit. You should come on down. All right. I, I'm there. Come visit me. <laughs> For those of you that have never listened to this podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name's Will. Hi, <laughs> uh, yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> the Gray Fossil Site is a fossil locality in East Tennessee, about 20 minutes from where I am sitting right now. It preserves fossils from the early Pliocene epoch, about 5 million years ago. And there's all sorts of cool things there. Tapers, rhinos, mastodon, alligators, snakes, 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 snakes. There's actually a new species of snake there that was named by some pretty cool guys. Yeah, yeah, a flying one. That's what that's what they say. <laughs> This new bit of news is described the first report of the fossil peccaries from the Gray Fossil Site. Yay. This is research done by Doty et al. in the journal Peer J. We don't have a popular news article to link as of this recording, but by the time the blog post comes out, I may have written one. (laughs) So on the blog post, it will either link to the paper or to a thing that I've written. (laughs) so we'll see he's working on it i'm working on it we're gonna get there so first and foremost what's a peccary so peccaries uh, live here in the united states central america south america they are very much like pigs but they are not pigs i like them better they are sort of small bodied animals uh, omnivorous they have little tusks sticking out of their their mouths they are kind of the new world version of pigs True pigs are old world animals. They live in Europe, Asia, Africa. Peccaries are teasuids, which live in the Americas. So they're new world. That's sort of where the geographic split is. In some parts of North America, and perhaps farther south than that, they are called javelinas. This study is pretty cool because we have been finding bits of peccary at the Gray Fossil Site for years. But this is the first time that a group of researchers has actually sat down to study them. And what they found was that we have two different species of peccary at the Gray Fossil Site. We've discovered, uh, among the bits and pieces, they were able to describe them on two pretty pretty much complete lower jaws, one from each species, and bits of the top of the skull from one of them as well. Nice. One of the peccaries is named Prosthenops cirrus. This is not a new species, but it is a species that is one of the species we found here. This species has actually been found elsewhere in the United States. This genus is all over. This species has actually been found in several fossil sites, but this is the first time it's ever been found 
in the southern Appalachian region, which is pretty cool. Once again, way to go gray. Way to go gray. And speaking of which, the other species is called Milohias elmori. The genus Milohias is found all around North America, but this species has only ever been found in one region in central Florida. Wow. Which is more than 900 kilometers south of the gray fossil site. So this is what we call a range extension of a species. <laughs> Before this, the, there was only one, as far as I know, only one cranium, top of the skull known, and ours is a more complete mandible, the lower jaw, than has been found before. It's actually really cool because that same region in Florida is also the only part of the world where the gray fossil site taper species has ever been found. Makes sense. And there are a lot of similarities between that area and the gray fossil site, which is pretty, pretty, a pretty fun connection to, to note. That's very cool. A previous study reported that some of the peccaries from the gray fossil site seem to have been browsers based on the chemistry of their bones. And the authors in this study agree that the bones they're looking at look like the teeth are adapted for browsing, which makes sense because gray was this forested environment and most or all of our big herbivores seem to have been browsers yes neat i always i always liked the peccaries there and so that's that's cool to learn more about them yeah and it's always fun to add a couple names to the list mm -hmm. it's getting longer and longer <laughs> and the one of the things that i really like about this study is that if this might be the first well it's not, not the first but it's one of the first studies we've ever talked about on the podcast where i know all of the authors yes yes there are four authors. They are two former students uh, that, of the same program Will and I were in, Evan Doty and Lauren Lyon. Yeah. And then our professors, Drs. Blaine Schubert and Stephen Wallace. Yep, yep. This is definitely the first one where we have met uh, all of the people. Right. Well, <laughs> there was that snake paper. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... I I know those guys. I, yeah, I guess I do know them pretty well. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty forgettable, though. <laughs> it's the first notable Pete. No. Um. <laughs> <sighs> well, so there's peccaries at the Great Fossil Site. Two whole species, pretty cool stuff. Nice. I always like peccaries just because their their tusks look so much nastier than than pig tusks because they're just both self-sharpening fangs, which is just just cool. You don't want to fight one of those. Mm -mm. Peccaries are neat. My first bit of news goes back a little bit farther. We're talking about an ichthyosaur, those famous marine reptiles from the Mesozoic. And this is an exceptionally well-preserved one that actually shows signs of both soft tissue that hints at blubber and signs of some coloration. Ooh. So very cool one. This is a bit of research done by Lindgren et al. and published in Nature very recently, and the article that we're linking to is uh, by Brian Sweetek at the smithsonian.com news page. So this paper describes a ichthyosaur known as Stenopterygius, which is found in Jurassic material, roughly 178 million years old. Once again, ichthyosaurs are those reptiles that are often pointed at as a key example of convergent evolution, these looking very much like dolphins and streamlined bodies, a, a long, narrow snout and curved dorsal fin with a more shark-like tail because they swim like a reptile, but still, streamlined predators, very sharky, very ichthyosauri. This one, though, is a unusual specimen that they found. It's actually known as 
MH432. Found originally in Germany and is so well preserved it has maintained some of the soft tissue around the bones. Typically, ichthyosaurs do not preserve this sort of stuff and this kind of tissue usually does not preserve very well in marine fossils. Right. But the researchers decided to look at how much they might be able to see by analyzing this material down to a, a more focused uh, aspect. They used both chemical and molecular analysis techniques. Uh, one of the researchers described it as probably one of the most in-depth cross-disciplinary studies of this kind, of this molecular chemical analysis that they were aware of. So, I mean, cool. they, they, they threw a bunch of different techniques and tools at it to see what they could find out. Yeah, so they've got this sort of film, yeah, it's, of it's soft it's, tissue preservation. There's it not, looks like not a, a lot there. Yeah, it, well, it just kind of looks like a shadowed layer around the rock. Like, yeah, if you, if if any of us that didn't study soft tissue just looked at it, it just looks like darker rock around the bones. But that's because yeah. of the organic matter that has preserved in that, or at least stained that rock with its materials. As I said, usually this stuff does not yield much from marine fossils. But evidently, marine environments are not ideal for this. This one, though, yielded some cool stuff. Two main results, as I mentioned. Signs of blubber and signs of coloration. That's so cool. So we'll knock out the coloration one first, because that one's a little more straightforward. The blubber has a lot of implications, <laughs> if that's correct. So we've talked about some coloration before. This was found due to molecules called chromatophores that were left behind in the fossil. And it suggests that they can't get actual pigment coloration, but they can find out where the shading of this animal was. And it suggests that it was countershaded. Oh, cool. Another thing that we've mentioned before on the podcast, but for you yep. all, a refresher. This is a, an extremely common feature found in marine animals today, but even... Most animals have a little bit of countershade. Like, it's it's pretty common that most animals, or many animals, are countershaded to some degree. This is when your belly is lighter than your back. Yeah, that's, yes. That's it. Yeah, it counteracts your shadow. Yeah. If the sun's above you, and it casts a shadow on your belly, and it makes your back light, this counters that, mm -hmm. and it makes it breaks up your 3D shape. And that, that helps in forests. It does a whole bunch of stuff. And so it helps for a lot of different reasons. Now, the... Potential blubber has big implications. First off, blubber is that fatty layer that surrounds a lot of marine animals today. Uh, most types of whales, you know, dolphins and filter feeding whales, both included, have it. A lot of uh, penguins have this mm -hmm. and even leatherback sea turtles. So this is not like an uncommon feature in marine big animals or you know, even smaller penguins. But... It is not something that we had found in ichthyosaurs. This makes sense for marine stuff, but it suggests something important, which is a question we always ask about ancient reptiles. If you have insulating blubber, it suggests you are making or maintaining your own heat. Yeah. Which suggests that this was an endothermic, a quote-unquote warm-blooded animal, which is cool. That also tends to suggest an active lifestyle pointing to that these were active hunters and means they may have been hunting deep down where they needed insulating blubber in the depths of the water, which is what many animals that have blubber today use it for. They may live somewhere warm, but they hunt where it's cold. Interesting. So it's got a lot of cool stuff. It's also a nice added layer to the convergent example mm -hmm. 
between them and dolphins and porpoises. Yeah. Another <laughs> thing that would be similar. They even used artificially matured porpoise skin to compare to the potential fossil blubber they had found to see oh, if they fun. if they looked similar. So like it, <laughs> it's just furthering those connections. I like the parallels here with other marine reptile fossils. Mm-hmm. That there has been there was a discovery a while back of a mosasaur with evidence of countershading and the the support for warm bloodedness <laughs> in marine reptile and mesozoic marine reptiles has been gradually building. Absolutely. That these were endothermic, something something akin to warm blooded, uh, which is really fun. And and blubber, how insane is that? That's, That's super cool. It means they'd be squishy. Well, they would have been pudgy. Yeah, like if you touch them, they probably would have gone. (laughs) They would they would have been a little rubbery, probably feeling from it. Like yeah, that's it's it's just another uh, um, aspect of their life that it fills in a little bit, which is really neat. Very cool. Well, my second bit of news comes from a little-known fossil locality called the Gray Fossil Site. I heard about that one recently. Yeah, it's a pretty cool place. You should go visit. It's happening. There's there's stuff so, out there. This is a new report. This is actually pretty cool because we lamented for a long time that there was that the, the publication rate out of Gray was slow. Like there wasn't a lot. You know, we always wanted to see more research done. Well, now we got two in like a week because there there's so much to publish on. There is, including fossil fungus. Oh, that's neat. This is really cool. This is a study by Gregors Worobiec et al. in the journal Mycosphere. Um, For those of you who haven't listened to this episode of the podcast, the Gray Fossil Site is a fossil site in eastern Tennessee, 5 million years old. Early Pliocene, lots of cool animals, including a couple species of peccaries. At least two. pretty neat. At least two. Several years ago, these authors were investigating pollen from the Gray Site. Uh, The way that you explore pollen is you get soil samples, sediment samples, put them under just through these increasingly small screens and then put it under a crazy powerful microscope and look for little tiny pollen grains. We have learned a lot from the pollen of the gray fossil site, but while they were looking, they also noticed bits of fungus. So they published the pollen study in 2013 and then went back to take the samples that had the most interesting amounts of fungus in them from three locations on the site, the elephant pit, the bear pit, and what has become known as the mulch pit, <laughs> which, which we are very familiar with. Yes. Yes, we are. What they found includes... Now, when I first saw this title, I was like, oh, it must be like spores. The same way you get pollen. Yeah. Right? It must be spores. It's not. This is bits of mantle tissue. What? And mantle is a sheath that goes over the hyphae which are the branches of fungal mycelium. So it actual branching actual tissue. That's cool. And bits of tissue from the sporocarp, which is the fruiting body of a fungus, which is basically the mushroom. That's cool. All of these pieces are between 0.05 millimeters and 0.2 millimeters long. Very microscopic. Huh. Actual preserved fungal tissue. I, 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 I never would have bet that we would have found that at the site because it's not mineralized. 
yeah well apparently some of the tissue can be hardened and it can it, it can be it sounds like it's it's similar in some respects to wood and we get okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. remains of wood so I, yeah little bits of fungal tissue that's really cool they identified three species uh and i'm gonna read the names they won't mean it they don't mean anything to me <laughs> but they are called cephalothacoidomyces neogenicus Trichothyroides CF patapacarensis. CF means not necessarily that species, but at least similar to that species. And Cenococcum CF geophylum. Now, I don't know what any of those mean because I uh, fungus. Mm-mm. But one of them is a type of fungus that probably grew on decaying wood. So I imagine like the shelf fungi or the little buds that you get to see, you see popping up on like dead logs and stuff. Your classic forest fungus. Yeah. One of them is, at least one of them, is a mycorrhizal fungus. So mycorrhizae are these symbiotic associations of fungus growing alongside plant roots. And it's one of those sort of unsung underground, literally underground, phenomena in forests that the vast majority of vascular plants that have roots, you know, growing in soil on land, have some sort of mycorrhizal fungus growing among the roots it it's one of those aspects of um plant anatomy and and lifestyle that sounds like a sci-fi concept of a plant that grows alongside fungus helpers that aids it in transferring and collecting nutrients but it's ridiculously common and basically every tree you typically look at has it underground with it and we just never talk about it because even if you were to dig in the soil there it's so small you wouldn't notice it so it's just all overall under the ground under us but it's super cool it and some at the gray fossil site unsurprising to to have had it there surprising to me to see it yes to find it two of these taxa these newly named fungi are the first records of their kind for north america woo which is pretty awesome which I assume is a function of them just being rare to begin with. And these, combined with one report of fungus from an earlier palynological study, which is to say pollen, uh, one of the, an, an earlier grace site pollen study also identified some fungus, just sort oh, of as a side note. Yeah. Together, these suggest an environment with high precipitation, warm and wet, uh, which is in agreement with some other findings from the gray site, but there's also plant findings that suggest warm and dry conditions, mm-hmm. which might simply mean that we had different uh, uh, vegetation, if you will, thriving in different seasons. Yeah. So that the wet season was when these fungi were really having their heyday, but then you could also have a dry season. That's interesting. That's cool. Fungus. This might be the first time we've ever talked about fossil fungus on the podcast. I think it might be. Yeah. I, once again, never would have guessed it that we'd find it there. That's really, really cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Nice. Just gets better and better. My final bit of news uh, deals with a subject that we'll be diving into very shortly because it has to do with Australian dinosaurs. I like both of those things. Yeah. This is about an Australian dinosaur fossil that has been fossilized in opal. Ooh. Which is really cool. So it's all rainbow colored. It's pretty. It's, It's a jeweled fossil. And there's there's nothing flowery about the way that that is literally what it is. <laughs> That's it's awesome. Yeah, 
This research is by Bell et al. and Pierre J. And the article we'll be linking to is from John Pickrell from the National Geographic website. So a little background. Oh, I didn't mention a popular, like a news article for that fungal piece because there isn't one. But hey, maybe I'll write something. Yeah, with someone's working on it. Cool guy. <laughs> I apologize. Go ahead. Opal Dinosaur. <laughs> so a little bit of background. Within Lightning Ridge in New South Wales, we'll go over where that is in just a little bit. Opal is a very well-known uh, deposit to find there. So it's it's a very common or at least commonly found gem material out of that area of Australia. It's very common in shops, and in 2013, a opal dealer named Mike Pobin purchased a bag of rough opals to eventually sell. Before he tried to sell them off, he did as he always did whenever getting new opals and looked through it for fossils, because opalized fossils are actually pretty common in that area. Mm -hmm. So he'd look through the bag and see if he found anything neat, and sure enough, he came across a piece of bone with teeth in it. Ooh. And very quickly realized that this meant it was a piece of jawbone and that that's a big deal. Held yeah. on to it, sent the bag of opal out with a, a thing called a runner to go see if anyone was interested in buying it. Over a week went by, uh, up to nine days, and no one bought it. And it came back to him. So he decided to go through it again. Just, I guess, something to do. Found another portion of the same jaw. It connected. <laughs> So had someone bought it in that week, who knows? But they didn't. And now he had a portion of jaw and luckily donated it to the Australian Opal Center in Lightning Ridge in 2014, which is a local museum that collects opalized fossils. Oh, nice. Now, so basically what opalized means is that instead of fossilizing in some sort of limestone or sandstone, it the mineral that replaced the bone was opal. And so these right. are fossils made out of gemstone. They're very pretty. They're very colorful. And this turned out to be a dinosaur jawbone, which, as we'll discuss soon, is very, very rare in Australia. That is not common. And it's a new species. Hooray. Which is extra cool. This new dinosaur was named Weewarasaurus hobini. And as you may have guessed, it's named after Poban for discovering it. This is a small dinosaur, probably about the size of a, I think they compared it to a Labrador, so medium dog. Yeah. Just not very big. It's an ornithopod dinosaur, and that's the, the group of herbivores that includes things like hadrosaurs, though this was not one of those and not nearly as big, and was interesting because it had both a beak and chewing teeth. Oh, cool. So it had a little nipping beak and then teeth to chew the food up with, so it was very likely a herbivore, as many ornithopods were, and uh, most likely bipedal, so walking on its hind legs. So a little, a little dinosaur walking around. This adds to other species of ornithopods found in this area of Australia. Uh, and from that same area, there are fragments of, not through this discovery, but just known from that same area, there are fragments of up to three other species of small ornithopods. So this is a number among these small herbivorous dinosaurs. Oh, interesting. A whole little ornithopod fauna. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the interesting things as to why this area was so rich with them, the article points out, this is kind of getting ahead in our 
episode because we could discuss this then, <laughs> but it also is specific to this animal. Uh, Australia does not have the large hadrosaurs or ceratopsians, the, the quote-unquote duckbills or the horned dinosaurs. Right. Those are North American and Asian groups, and they are kind of masters at chewing plants, while these are not quite as specialized with their amazing teeth that the with the amazing teeth that the others are so well known for right right so the fact that they didn't make it to australia may have been why we see so many here oh they diversified where there was a niche space absolutely and one of the interesting things as well is that these type of ornithopods are also found in antarctica and argentina after Ah, gondwana yeah but it's after it broke up that the these right, are dated right. to being found. So it suggests that they may have still been able to travel or that there's a older history. So there's something interesting going on with these little dinosaurs down there. Very cool. Always neat to find dinosaurs in new, unexpected places. Mm-hmm. And on that note, to go ahead and continue with this Australian-themed bit of discussion, let's talk about Australia. Let's do it. After these tunes. So Australia, in case anyone has never heard of it, is down in the southern hemisphere below Asia and to the east of Africa and to the west of South America. Yes, down under. Down under. This is uh, a very interesting continent, uh, country, continent, country. We'll go over that. (laughs) This is a very interesting bit of land because it is old and its geology is very unique. It's been around for an extremely long time and has seen basically the majority of Earth's history. So there's yeah. a lot to it. It also has very unique wildlife. At least nowadays it does. And this all makes it a very interesting case study for kind of a different point of view to look at the Earth from. With this episode, we're going to kind of go through, and this bit of discussion, I'll give you some details about what Australia is, and then we're going to just kind of start at the beginning and follow Australia from when it wasn't to what it is today. But first, let's get to know what Australia is now and and how we know it as, as humans. First and foremost, is it a continent? Is it a country? Well, it's both, depending on which way you're looking at it. The continent of Australia includes the main body, the main landmass that you typically picture, as well as New Guinea and Tasmania, islands to the north and south. So those are all on the same continental plate, the Indo-Australian plate, the big sheet of land below the ocean that all continents rest on one of these plates or another, and these are the things that shift around the tectonic plates. They lay on the same plate along with India up in the north. And this plate yes. actually runs down and almost meets up with Antarctica. So it's a really large plate. And the plate is a very active one, actually. It's currently moving uh, right now. Measurements show it moving at about seven centimeters a year. Wow. It's roaring through the ocean down there. Yeah, which is actually pretty fast for a continental plate <laughs> as far as continents move. Now, as a country, which is the main landmass, that is the country of Australia. So, continental Australia, country Australia. This is unique for so many reasons on our planet. But 
first and foremost, just as a landmass, it is the lowest, flattest, and oldest landmass we know of or on Earth today. There's pretty pretty high <laughs> honors there. Yeah, it's it's got some really interesting measurements. So it is fairly large. It's the sixth largest country in the world today, uh, just after Russia, Canada, China, U.S., and Brazil at, what is it, 7,692 and 24 square kilometers. So Not bad. Big one. It's it's basically just just comparable in size when you like overlay it and the United States. They're they're just kind of different shaped. It's not behind these by much. It is the smallest continental landmass, but it is also the world's largest island, even though it's kind of informally considered an island since it's surrounded on all sides by water. Right. Island continent. Island continent. I like to call it. It's it's one thing, it's a it's an interesting unique place. It is remarkably flat, which means most of its rivers are very slow flowing, often into interior salt lakes through very arid regions, very dry is what that means, dry and dusty. And because it's actually on the center of its continental plate, very few earthquakes and unique among most continents, basically no volcanoes. Oh, interesting. It's, it's, I never even thought about yeah, that. It's not near any edges where lava can bubble up through. It's just smack dab in the middle, which makes it incredibly stable. Things aren't shaken up around there. It's not like California where it's at the edge of a plate. So it's not shaking. Right. It's not red hot other than the fact that it is red and it is hot, but it's not lava. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why Sauron nestled on New Zealand instead. Exactly. There's you can't make rings of power in the middle of what, the where, outback. Where are your orcs even going to live? No, it's ridiculous. Now today, it is broken up into six states and two territories. Now usually we wouldn't go over you know geographical, human political regions, but since there's only eight total, uh, it also will help me to say where we're pointing at on the map because they're really really big. <laughs> they don't have tiny little t states like us. They have giant ones. <laughs> So build, uh, listeners, your picture of Australia in your mind. So when looking at Australia, there are two main eastern uh, portions and then a little small one at the very bottom. So if you cut Australia into thirds, the eastern third, at the top you have Queensland, which very many people hear about. The middle and main section is New South Wales. And inside here is the Australian Capital Territory, just a little blip. So that one we're not going to mention much. But New South Wales, and then below that is Victoria State. And that is the very south uh, eastern portion. In the middle, you have the Northern Territory and South Australia. Easy to remember. On the west, you have Western Australia. Also easy to remember. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that they colonized from the east... And ran out of ideas as they went. And, and ran out of water. Because <laughs> you get into the outback. <laughs> yep, and they're like, what's this place called? <laughs> Western Australia. Just keep walking. Well, you 12 live here. You have lots of room to spread out. It's a very open... It also has, a, for like square footage of people per country, it has a very low population density for the country there's like a lot yeah. of wide areas where literally there's gonna be miles in between people they do a radio school where you radio in and it's crazy oh, cool 
And then you have Tasmania, just off the southeastern tip. Boop. Yeah, Tasmania is, a, is an island. It is an island, in fact. So and not, not part of the, the main country. Mm-hmm. So there's the landmass. Now, as we've already alluded to, climatically, very arid. And it has a really interesting surface because it's been weathered for years and years and has formed a buildup of iron oxides in the soil, which rusts and turns red, making the surface that nice orange-red color. It's the same reason Mars is red. I was about to say that. I could tell. I say yep. It looks like Mars. It looks yep. like Mars. Same thing. So once Send again, a rover over there. It is a unique, this is a Mars-like country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's covered with alien creatures. Oh, and they're so interesting. So Australia has. <laughs> and also the wildlife. <laughs> I only know one Australian person. So like, he'll he'll I, think it's funny. I think he'd be okay. Yeah, he'd think it was funny. Yeah, as long as Mick thinks it's funny, then you were good. <laughs> it's our litmus test the animals and plants but we're going to focus on the animals because those are the ones i can actually describe for you well and they're better yeah i mean well they you know they move uh ali's not here to defend them, yeah. so. <laughs> yep. you, you should have been here should have been here <laughs> the wildlife of australia is incredibly rich it's actually a very you know thoroughly populated you know arid area but they're unique and I'm not just saying that in that they are weird. They are unique to Australia very often. Huge amounts of the wildlife in Australia are endemic, meaning they're only found in Australia. We talked about that in episode 40 about Madagascar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is an entire <laughs> major continent. This is something the size the of the thing. U.S. that has that kind of situation. Yeah. Some percentages for you all. About 83% of mammals, 89% of ma- uh, reptiles, nice. 24% of the fish and insects, 45% of the birds, and 93% of the amphibians. Wow. Found in Australia are only found in Australia. Wow. It's crazy. It's only They're very the fir- bad at sharing. <laughs> only the birds and fish who can leave are the ones that have a low percentage. <laughs> and, they, and a quarter of them don't even want to. Yeah. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Some of the big named ones, like uh, entire groups, the macropods, kangaroos, monotremes are found on continental, not just the country. They're actually also found in New Guinea and Tasmania. And cassowaries are all endemic to this country. So there are some groups that not only the species, but entire groupings of animals are only found here. Yeah. Monotremes are an entire branch. This is a- like there are th- three <laughs> branches of mammals. And one of them one is of them's monotremes. And then marsupials are not unique to Australia. Yeah. There are possums in, in the Americas, including up here. Uh, but aside from that, it's all, all the marsupials are in Australia. Oh, and it, to give you another percentage, of the 334 extant species, roughly, of modern marsupials, 70% of them are in Australia. Wow. That's honestly, that's more possums than I thought there were in the Americas. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, no, it's, and we'll get on some interesting notes with the marsupials because, in fact, they did not originate in Australia. And no, they did not. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. 
<laughs> As we mentioned, all monotremes today are found in New Guinea and Australia, the country. And there are only five extant species. So it's not like there's swarming the area, but they're only known from this area of the world. Uh, these are your egg-laying mammals. Uh, yes. Your echidnas, both the short-beaked and long-beaked, and the platypus. Platypodes. Yeah. So these are found in this area, and it's very interesting because Australia is the only place where these groups of mammals outcompeted our group of mammals, the placentals. Yeah, this is where they've held on. And it's a really interesting history. Now, just to give you some other interesting numbers, uh, there's a huge populations of different animals. There's 5,000 species of fish that inhabit the Australian waterways, 800 species of birds, tons of cool things like that. But for the cool ones, the reptiles, because we just we have to take an aside. I've been waiting. Yes. Australia. the good ones. Oh, it has such cool reptiles. It has tons of lizards. It has 700 species of lizards. Lizards like dry environments. They they are one of the few animals that really do well there. And boy, did Australia provide. They got cool ones like the goannas, which are a group of monitor lizards known only toward to Australia. They have not that many turtles. 35 species of turtles, but these are the side neck turtles. Yeah, we haven't done a turtle episode yet. But turtles are split into two main groups. Yep. The ones that, that pull their heads sort of straight back into the shell, and the ones with long, snaky necks that have to fold it up side to side to get it in there. The, the weird ones. They're, and yeah, those are found mainly in South America and Australia. And they have those. They also have the only fully aquatic freshwater turtle, the pig-nosed turtle. <gasps> Caretachilles! Yes! The pig-nosed turtle. I got to meet one of those yeah, we, several years ago. We did. They're fantastic. They're so cute. They are fully flippered freshwater turtles. It's the only one we know. So that's really, really cool. It has crocs. It just has two species. A medium-ish, smallish species, the freshwater crocodile. Uh, they're a little bit smaller than like the North American alligator. They're not that big they're kind of very thin and svelte they're one of the few crocs that while full-grown gallop but they gallop away from cool. stuff instead of towards stuff like the cuban crocodile <laughs> <laughs> and then they have the largest modern reptile the saltwater or indo-pacific or estuarian crocodile which is currently today the largest reptile alive the biggest one ever found was not in Australia, actually. It was in Indonesia because they range from there to India. <laughs> to wherever they want. Because <laughs> oceans. Who cares? <laughs> uh, got over 20 feet long and just over a ton. So they have a very small, harmless little crocodile and then one of the biggest, most aggressive crocodiles on the planet. And then they've got their snakes. And boy, oh boy, David. I, right? Do they have some snakes? They've, it's a cool place. So they've got quite a few. They have over 100, about 140 land snakes. And then they have over 30 sea snakes. <laughs> <laughs> For comparison, in the United States, you are, if you're lucky, you will encounter one species of sea snake. <laughs> Just man. <laughs> and when you look at these snakes, they have another interesting ratio. This is one of the only places, and in fact, probably the only place, where the ratio of venomous to non-venomous is in favor of the venomous. Which is ridiculous. There's a, of those 140 land snakes, 
about a hundred of them are venomous. <laughs> and and what? venomous <laughs> when we classify venomous snakes, we're talking dangerous to humans venomous. <laughs> it's crazy. I don't I don't know all the Australian snakes, but there's a good chance that some of the non venomous ones are are actually maybe a little venomous. Oh yeah, well it's like they discovered hognose snakes were venomous because one guy got bitten and went, My thumb feels funny. It's well, no they're one... venomous to a mouse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They've got a lot. They also have uh, a, a few pythons and quite a number of insector- in- insectivorous blind snakes, the little little wormy looking ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got over 30 of those, which is more snakes than I thought, more blind snakes than I thought you could fit in a country. That even, <laughs> even a country as big as Australia. <laughs> That's, yeah, they have awesome reptiles the snakes have really just taken over down there and it's an awesome place for animals humans didn't arrive until about 50,000 to maybe 30,000 years ago this is when we see the first indigenous the aborigines arrive in australia these are actually considered some of the first humans to migrate out of africa or potentially some of the earliest. We don't know exactly who is, but these are some of the earliest humans to migrate out of Africa. We see Aborigines uh, arrive in Asia from Africa about 70,000 years ago and then arrive in Australia 50,000 years ago. And then it's believed they went from there to the other islands. We don't see... European discovery to where we're going to get all the modern names until 1606. Right. When uh, us us northerners showed up. Mm-hmm. And the the European side of the history started. Uh, that's and we it, just got along great. Oh, uh, yeah. No, swing. As we always do. Oh, yeah, it's... There's a, there's a history there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And luckily, that's modern history, and I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> that's overburden that's that's yes <laughs> so uh, we're gonna go back farther than that uh <laughs> this is when it got the name australia uh, or shortly after this not actually right away it wasn't until the 19th 19th century that it got the name australia and this is based off of terra australis which we mentioned in our antarctica episode episode 11 and the concept of terra australis is a very old one from the, the latin name southland that yeah. suggested austral means south south and this was the idea of a southern continent that did not exist for any scientific reason it was that well all us you know greeks are up here in the northern side of the planet there's got to be something down there to keep it balanced oh yeah absolutely like a seesaw yeah and that, otherwise the earth would tip over that was basically that was the concept and it, it would be on <laughs> hypothetical Terra Australis's would be on maps for quite a time. When they found this, the name was thrown around. It was not actually mistaken, as I think I said it was in the Antarctica episode. I found a thing that said it was not initially like stamped Terra Australis. It was actually called New Holland for quite a while. And interesting. Nova Hollanday is yeah. a species epithet that I've seen for maybe the Tasmanian devil. There you go. Yep. Is that it? That's Oh, I'm impressed with me. <laughs> Interesting. There you go. So that's that's uh that that was the name for quite a while, but in the 19th century they overturned New Holland and renamed it Australia. And the term Australia had 
sometimes been applied to Antarctica, or that was just the southern continent. But yeah, they took it back, and I have a quote here that's really fun, because one of the people who really pushed for them to change the name was uh, Matthew Findlers, who is uh, one of the famous people who have founded a portion, and there's Findlers uh, is an area in Australia named after this person. And when they were making the push to change the name in Australia, the quote is that it was more agreeable to the ear and an assimilation of the names of other great portions of the earth. So basically it just sounded better. I was about to say, actually, that I'm glad they changed it because Australia is a much cooler name than yep. New Holland. And that, 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 was, that was basically, that was the whole concept. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, that's enough for modern Australia. That was fun. Yeah, modern being the last 50,000 years. Yeah. So let's talk about where it got its start. We have to jump back way, way, <laughs> way into the past. In the beginning. Literally. In the beginning. Australia, the oldest rock we have found, is almost as old as the oldest estimation for the planet. Yeah, the oldest material, the oldest dated materials on Earth have been found on Australia. We talked about Ooh. these in our History of the Earth yes. digression. Yes, we did. Way back when. So this is a continent that is as old as our planet, effectively. The, the 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 cores of this continent were forming while the solar system was still chilling out. <laughs> <laughs> and in and this is true of many parts of the world that the uh you know, the core of North America also goes back nearly this far. Mm -hmm. uh, you find bits of it sticking up in Canada. The 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 Canadian Shield mm -hmm. has some of the oldest rocks on the planet, but they're not always very accessible. <laughs> that was one of the ones that was uh in in competition with Australia. For oldest bit of dirt. <laughs> the oldest rocks, I think, are are similar mm -hmm, between mm -hmm. Canada and Australia. But the oldest minerals, yes, the oldest material, is an Australian record. So, before we go into that bit, just a, a really quick overview that you'll notice this trend. Australia forms from west to east. It forms in three main phases. Oh, interesting. Western Australia, Northern and Southern Australia, and Queensland. There you go. In the Archaean, which is one of the oldest ages in Earth's history, starts is, at 3.8 billion years ago. Yep, we're gonna get we're gonna get into more details here. You see the Western portion form. The Central portion forms in the Proterozoic after the Archaean, and then the the Eastern portion forms in the Phanerozoic, which includes all the ages that you typically hear about starting with the Cambrian. Oh, interesting. So there was like a, that, those are jumps of about a billion years or so. It's, it's, it was a slow forming. So you have a very old area going into younger and then the younger material covers the rest with the soil and stuff that everything's living on. Right, right. And so you'll notice this trend. So starting with the formation of Australia, we actually have to go before the Archean because we're in the Hadean. 4.6 to 4 billion years ago is when the oldest minerals in Australia and so far found on our planet formed. These are called zircons, zircon crystals. These were found in Western Australia in an area known as Jack Hills in igneous rock that was formed from what they interpreted as a effectively lake of lava 
<laughs> that was most likely created when Earth was hit by that a uh, Mars-sized planet that created our moon. So <laughs> you say it was a tumultuous time. So like, this is the kind of time we're talking. Earth's not done being becoming Earth yet. <laughs> and we should specify that these are not like cliffs of super ancient rock. No, these zircon grains are microscopic. Yes. To give you an idea of how microscopic we're talking. So the main way to age back to this time is uranium lead dating. Mm -hmm. Radioactive uranium, as we're all familiar with, decays. That's what radiation is. Is it decaying, throwing off parts of itself, eventually turns into lead. And you can look at the lead in minerals, rocks, around fossils to determine the age by the amounts of lead that are there and uh that will give you due to the constant decay rate how old it is or a range these zircon crystals contained bits of this lead and nice nice each one contained about 50 atoms of lead wow so not much <laughs> wow these are tiny this is this is a very small bit of evidence that gives us information that dates these back to 4.374 billion years, give or take 6 million. The time between those forming and the formation of the planet is l roughly the time between us and the first dinosaurs. Yep. This makes it about 160 million years after the solar system formed. <laughs> That's... <laughs> so old it's crazy it's the only insane. things we've ever dated that are older than that are meteorites and moon rocks yeah things not here yeah and then in the archean just as david said just a little bit under four billion years ago we see the first shields of australia which are large continental sections of the planet uh, the, the lithosphere, which is the top two layers of Earth's layers. These are big stable portions that make up most continents, interiors or cores or parts. They're big stable right, chunks. Right, The heart of a continent. Yeah. The literal foundation, the literal core. And there were three that made up this. The Pilbara in the north, the Yilgrun in the south, and the Galler block in uh southern australia these formed together and were crushed together to make up the body of australia yeah. and then since then we've been it's been collecting Added more on. continent yeah now the archean doesn't just stop there because australia also has some of the oldest known fossils sure does that we've ever found ever uh <laughs> stromatolites which we've mentioned before uh we yes, mentioned these yeah. a couple of times Stromatolites are leftover layered mineral that is built up from cyanobacteria colonies. Mm -hmm. Not only does Australia have some fossils of these that date back to 3.465 billion years ago, they also have still living ones in yeah, they Shark do. Bay in Western Australia. So, you know, <laughs> why not? So you can study fossil stromatolites and then go watch them being formed still in the same continent oldest crystal oldest bacteria check do you do you want more <laughs> what do you just... want what do you want we got egg laying mammals what else, what oh, else do you want it's you want crazy. to get bit by a snake yes 
<laughs> Too late, you were. <laughs> As we continue, we get to the Proterozoic, which is about two and a half billion to 541 million years ago. This is what ends the Precambrian. And here you get in another big portion of Australia added, the fold belts and sedimentary basins. Fold belts are basically when rock is like crushed and warped through movements. Mm -hmm. And sedimentary basins are basins that collect rocks, basins being low areas. When you get folding, you get these high places, low places, and the basins collect the sediment being eroded off of the hills and mountains of your folds. There you go. He's more of the ge geologist. I I never <laughs> I've, just, I have never taken a rock class in my life. Basin and range <laughs> regions. So these were added, and these made up the central portion of Australia. This also is when we find the oldest rock in Tasmania. So we know Tasmania was at least at least what it's made out of. You know, it's not an island right now, but what it was made out of was made at least during this time. This is also when most of their uh, ore bodies, their metals, get added in. Oh, cool. We see their gold, copper, lead, and zinc, silver, and uranium all start showing up at this time in the geology. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but Australia has a very, very rich geology. It has just about every kind of geology that exists. Like, it's got a very diverse and mosaic uh, uh, geological structures. So there's a lot of different things you can find there, which probably helps when you're held together for so long and it's so readily available to study. It's like a big conglomerate continent. Absolutely. And speaking of it being conglomerate, these land masses that have been gathering are believed to have been crushed together into one piece when the tectonic collisions that created the supercontinent Rodinia occurred 1.3 billion years ago or so oh. so rodinia was a supercontinent like pangaea we'll get to that later but it came way before any of the things we know were around all the land masses came together and they believe that's actually what crushed australia into being a little clump that would survive later on very cool so yeah. australia as we know it was sort of there by this time was forged at this that's the thing that blew my mind when i was reading this <laughs> is that literally continents are kind of forged by being pressed together by other continents that's crazy the evidence actually suggests that it was crushed from the west toward the south like in the easterly direction so it was crushed in from that side just under about a billion years ago and then shortly after rodinia broke up 830 million years ago. We're now in the millions and not billions. Young's times. Yeah. So whew, getting recent. Yes. Are, are you feeling old yet? <laughs> now, Rodinia broke up and it kind of broke into a Western and Eastern side. The Western side was known as Laurentia and the Eastern side is not yet Gondwana, but it would eventually become it. And includes the parts that would eventually become Australia, India, and Antarctica, who hang out together almost up until the bitter end. But they're, that's, those three are together basically through almost this entire episode. And during this time, right before we get into the not Precambrian, once, while we're still there, we get the Ediacaran. Yeah, you remember those from episode 31? Which we have discussed, and these are some of the oldest complex life 
And they're not just found in Australia, but they're named after it. The Ediacara Hills are what gave the Ediacara its name. And as we now know, these include this age includes the oldest animals from recent news sources that we have talked about here. So there you go. Oldest mineral, check. Some of the oldest fossils, check. Some of the oldest animals. <laughs> I actually don't know for sure if the oldest animal fossils have been found in Australia, but it was named after them, so you know, oh, they, they have Ediacaran. Yeah, well, I mean they, they they like they have to get royalties or something. Right. They're like, that's not ancient life. <laughs> this is ancient life. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> we are going... There's my good Australian accent. <laughs> are, you, are you impressed? <laughs> impressed? Aren't you glad you waited? <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we're going to move into the, the history that has lots of stuff living in it. We're going to move into the Phanerozoic and go through all those lovely periods that we know so well into the modern. Ooh, we're going to look at the fossil record. Yeah, so now we got some stuff that leave more recognizable fossils. I can't wait. So now as we enter more recent times, oh, recent, recent, Phanerozoic, Re the recent, recent life. Er. Yeah. The Phanerozoic is when the final portion of Australia is built across the Phanerozoic, so it's not built all at once. But during this time, we see the eastern portion of Australia built up and concreted. Most of this is metamorphic rocks, igneous rocks, so you know, volcanic stuff and old rocks that are you know created through the processes of geology. And sedimentary bases and... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, there's a variety of things in there, but you get a lot of really old rocks and more of those sedimentary basins, gatherings of other materials that create uh, the eastern portion of Australia. Yeah, the modern landscape. And covers the rest of it. So it has a, a layer of this across the whole thing, but when you go down deep enough, you find those previous sections we mentioned. Going into the Paleozoic, our first era... At the beginning of this is the Cambrian, so we're looking 545 million years ago. During this time, shallow warm seas cover parts of Australia, and through the center, in fact. And we actually have a lot of volcanism, so things during this time are much more geologically active. And this is where a lot of the sedimentary and igneous materials come from. Water oh, washing cool. it in, lava creating it, so... This is a time when it's active and it's building that other portion through these means. In the Cambrian, this is when we finally see South America and Africa come in to join Australia, India, and Antarctica to create Gondwana. Oh, the southern landmass. The southern supercontinent. This is about 500 million years ago that we see this formation really begin. And this is the largest landmass at the time. And so big southern portion of land. This will become a theme. We'll talk about Gondwana a lot during this episode. During the Ordovician, 485 to 443 million years ago, we see uh, a seaway through the center of Australia, the Larapinta Seaway. And this is through most of the Ordovician. 
Australia's on the equator at this time, so it's much warmer. Not going to be a lot taking advantage of this warm continent since most things are not on land yet. That's cool to imagine a across the continent tropical right? shallow sea. Absolutely. So uh, like Australia, Australia. It, it ha it's gone through a lot of phases and at one point it was a bountiful marine environment. Cool. So we move on. We're going to in the Silurian. Uh this is ranging between 443 419 million years ago or so. This is when we find the earliest land plant fossils in Australia. This is Silurian is when land plants first start to appear. Not very fancy plants. These are lycopods, which are include things like club mosses. Yeah, and very small, near the water kind yes, of plants. These are these are aqueous, so to speak. That they are typically coastal. They require moist, damp environments to reproduce. And the earliest one that was found is. Baragawanathia, and it was not the only one to be known here. There's a few others. Rhyoniophyta, Zosterophyophyta, and Trimerophyta. So we start seeing a green-ish Australia at this green, time. Green margined. Yeah. <laughs> it's green it's, on the edges. It's highlighted. Baragawanathia uh, is named after a person whose name was William Baragwanath. <laughs> oh. What a name. Poor, poor William. Poor William. <laughs> Man. So at this time, we're starting to see things make their way on, onto the surface. We see the first, you know, tree-sized lycopods come in in the Devonian. And now we start to see some more fossils show up. Which, this, this is still pretty, pretty normal for most land-based areas. The first shrubs show up around this time. Shrub-sized lycopods and everything. Most places in Australia, the water has receded. So we're starting to see less ocean coverage. This is a trend that does not stay consistent. It kind of comes and goes. Uh, parts of the northern uh, of West Australia has stay submerged. And in fact, coral reefs do very well in this area during this time. Oh, so, I bet there's a lot of limestone. Absolutely. And so you see flourishing in the ocean there, and during this time, lots of diversification in fish, which mm -hmm. it's the Devonian, so yeah. But the one that really stands out for me is this is the first time we see signs of tetrapods, walking things with four legs yeah, in Australia. Amphibious things. Yes. Uh, vertebrate animals have made it on to Australia. Smack dab in the... the mid of the Devonian, which is, goes from 419 to 358 million years ago. These trackways found in Victoria, so down in the southeastern corner, are in an area called Genoa River, and actually are made up of three trackways. So there's three known trackways from that location, two of which are definitely tetrapods. The third is actually kind of unsure what is it's not as clearly tetrapod so interesting so we have some amphibious things australia actually has a very good amphibian record as far as fossils go we'll get into a little bit of that later on in a couple of periods because it actually is very important for some early amphibians but we're seeing things walk around we're seeing some plants show up 
Corals are doing well. Fish are doing well. We enter the Carboniferous 358 million years ago, going all the way to just under 300 million years ago. And now Pangea starts to form. Yeah, we're getting the band back together. I definitely made that joke last time we talked about Pangea. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's Pangea. It's a good I joke. Like, I feel like it's required for that, that <laughs> mentioning of Pangea. Pangea is the combination of Gondwana in the south, Laurasia, and Siberia. Laurasia includes uh, Laurasia includes North America and Europe, and Siberia is Siberia. It's the main portion of Russia and and yeah. Northern Asia, uh, those come together to form one large supercontinent, Pangea, which is actually in the form of a sea. It's a, like a big sea-shaped yes. continent with a big C internal is for continent. Sea is for continent. That's with the... good enough for me. <laughs> so Australia is now connected to just pretty much all the other land on the planet. Absolutely, and it is the bottom point of the sea. So it's a, it's on the very southeastern tip, basically, of okay. Pangea. So it, it it's down there, still has a heavy connection to all the other states of Gondwana, but now it has access to the others, which becomes very important later on. Uh, this is definitely formed by 335 million years ago. During this time, the continent is actually, what would make up Australia, is actually affected by glaciation. Oh, cool. It's so weird to pick, imagine. Oh, it gets weirder. Uh, so this is shortly after Pangaea has formed. It's in the southern portion of Pangaea, and it's fairly close to the pole. It's not quite really there yet. A little bit later in the Carboniferous, it actually moves really close to the pole region and <laughs> loses a lot of those lycopods, and they they transfer over into seed ferns, which do better in the colder weather. So we're getting glaciation, we're getting a change in the plants, it's a cold Australia, and a lot of this uh, erosion from the glaciers extends into our next period, the Permian, so it lasts for a little while. In the Permian, 298 to 251 million years ago, it is still part of Pangaea, but has moved south, and is actually very close to the South Pole, and gets covered in an ice cap. Oh, cool. So like modern Antarctica, it's iced over. Which, Very cool. That's that's fascinating. That's so weird compared to what it is today. Well, and what a cool thing to have. We talked about in the Antarctica episode about how sad it is to have all of that geologic history trapped under two miles of ice. This is a continent that was lost to that and has come back. Yeah, just that we might never, we might never have found those zircon grains. No, I, there's and those stromatolites. So many things we wouldn't know. Who <laughs> knows what's on Antarctica? I'm sorry, Australia. This is your episode. I'm not gonna lament about Antarctica. Oh man. Well, hey, if things keep going the way they are, we should be able to look under Antarctica in no time. Oh yeah, drive that Hummer around the block another couple times. Woo! Woo Southern Antarctica, so Southern <laughs> Australia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have still... political jokes to make, but I'm not going to make <laughs> I know, them. <laughs> I know, right? There's been a couple of times where like moments come up and it's like... Mm, Fill in mm, your let's... own political humor here. That, that can go into after chat. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> There's still actually a good bit of volcanism during this time. So Australia is still a geologically active area uh, across the eastern seaboard from 
Sydney to uh, Cairns. So the, basically southern tip to northern tip almost. So it's covered in ice and also volcanically active. Yeah, so very what different a, Australia. What a, what a world. What a world. <laughs> Pretty sure Antarctica is also volcanically active. I think it is. I think yeah. it is. So that's not that's not like unheard of. But it's it you'd get burnt and frozen at the same time. Like that one Super Mario Galaxy world. <laughs> Just right at the <laughs> the nexus. Yeah, there's there's lava and ice. As we end the Permian, as many of you may remember, this ends the Paleozoic and we move into the Mesozoic. Yeah, remember episode forty five, there was an extinction. Big, big extinction here. And now we are in the Age of Reptiles, the one where a lot of the cool, scaly things come up. This is where the fossil record of Australia gets really, really crazy. Oh, boy. During the Mesozoic, generally, the Earth is warming. Australia comes back into a much more habitable situation. Throughout most of both the Triassic and Jurassic, from about 251 to 140 million years... The Australian landmass is mostly covered in plains, actually. So it, it becomes very lush during this early oh, portion as things now, warm up. Now, as you remember from episode 38, we're not talking like grasslands. No. Not like prairie, but open expanses, perhaps. But not yet. No grasslands yet. Yeah, they, they call these riverine plains, which is basically areas where water's running through and making everything lush. So that lo lots of water, fairly warm. Cool. Humid conditions allowed for peatlands and uh, areas like that to start to form. So it became Ooh. an extremely habitable area, uh, particularly in the east Triassic period, 251 to 201 million years ago, beginning of the Mesozoic, we have uh, an important event here. The Stereospondyles, which is a later group of the Timnospondyles, which are those early, big, impressive amphibians that we've mentioned a couple of times. These are the ones that could get up to, like, crocodile-sized and have big, scary teeth, but they were a very early group of dominant amphibians. Yeah, some one of the first groups of, of vertebrates to take on that croc-like yeah. body plan. Around this time, we start seeing a lot of Timnospondyles go extinct in other places in the world. So around the rest of Pangaea, a lot of those are disappearing, but the Stereospondyles hang it on in Australia and Antarctica and may have been the reason that they were then able to radiate out again globally. So, oh, so it was like a refugium for exactly. this group of animals. It wow. may have acted as a holding place. I got to you got to imagine that as the Cenozoic takes off later on, Australia was putting out flyers like, "Hey, we've been <laughs> acting as a refugium for endangered groups of animals since the Stereospondyls back in the Triassic. Send your marsupials <laughs> over to us." <laughs> Need a safe place to live? Try Australia. Are, is your neighborhood being taken over by placental mammals? And so it acts as a very important, like I said, very rich amphibian fossil record here. That's cool. Things start to change up when we enter the Jurassic 201 to 145 million years ago. We start to see Pangaea break up. So oh, no, now, the band's breaking up. It's oh, it's a shame. It's a shame. It's your, I, I like, they'll, they'll get a reunion concert in another right? 500 million years or so. At this time, about 160 million years ago, we start to see the land masses separate. It, it forms into two main continents, two main super land masses. 
one in the northern hemisphere, which is uh, Laurasia at this point, and then Gondwana still in the south, going strong with Antarctica, Australia, South America, Africa, and India. Back like it was. Yeah, like the good old days. As things go on, 150 million years ago, we see a valley start to form between Australia and Antarctica. Oh no. A rift valley as things are slowly pulling apart there. This is a very slow process, so there is evidence that they were splitting up quite a while ago. They don't fully split up until a little later on. Uh, The sea also started to move in again, started to flood in across northwest Australia, the coastline there. So Australia dips down a little bit under the water, which is warmer times, higher sea levels. That's pretty normal. This is around the same time that pretty soon we'll we'll be seeing a continental seaway make its way across North America as well. Yeah. One of the big things we start to notice here as that rift valley forms, not only is there a divide, and as we all know, Antarctica starts to go south, Australia starts to go north toward the equator, and it starts to warm up. So things are getting a little bit even warmer for Australia. And we also are now seeing Australia connected with a few other fragments that will eventually break off to the east and become New Zealand. Oh, cool. And then we enter the Cretaceous, and boy, does the fossil record go crazy. Cretaceous dates to 145 to 66 million years ago. During this time, sea levels rise. Much more of the continent is covered again, so we have a lot of that intersea area, great for diversification of animals. Gondwana starts to break up here. It, it's it's now Gondwana is also splitting. We've already have the Rift Valley between Antarctica and Australia, and it's dividing into two sections. Africa and South America go west. Antarctica and Australia go east. And so they're still connected. They're still associated, and they're not all just completely separate, but yeah, they're starting to really split up. So we're starting to see this is when things really start to take not exactly a picture that we recognize today, but they're getting in place. Yeah. And you can you can actually, if you were to look at a Cretaceous map, you can very clearly go, oh, well, there are all the pieces. They're just a little lumpier and in different spots. <laughs> yes. Like, if you look before this time, it's like, oh, look, lumps, big lumps of land. It doesn't look at all. But now the map is kind of recognizable. So Australia is still connected with Antarctica, but it's starting to establish itself as its own thing. As New Zealand moves away, we get the Tanzan Sea to the east of Australia, and that rifting continues, and the climate for Australia becomes very temperate. Things aren't probably dipping below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Even though it's fairly uh, reasonable as far as temperature goes, it's still kind of low on the planet, still semi-close to the South Pole, so it would have had very long periods of dark winters, and days where the sun just crests over the horizon. So you're getting an Australia with a very Canada winter going on. Right, right. During the Cretaceous is when most, the majority of modern Australian groups show up. Now we can really start getting into the fossil record. Because this is where a lot of the standout Australia fossils appear. First and foremost, we have monotremes. At 110 million years ago in the Cretaceous, these are... Not only still in Australia today, but they started here. In New South Wales, in here we find the oldest monotreme, Stereopodon 
Galmani, found here in the Cretaceous. It's kind of platypus-like, a little bit-ish. Not really, because it's not yet any of the recognizable groups. Is the not only the oldest monotreme, but the oldest mammal in Australia to be found. It had teeth, which is important to note that modern monotremes do not, except for juvenile platypus. So platypus... Yeah, they have those, those like, plates... Yeah. ...that they're using to, to grind stuff up. And but and so like it's weird because platypus are born with teeth and they lose them and then use those plates. Fossil monotremes, many of them had teeth, so that was yeah, something that platypuses are weird. They're weird, and this one had a recognizable little teeth in a jaw, three molars. That's all that is really known of this monotreme. So it's not super super well known. It's only got a little bit, but it was uh, fairly large for this time. It was a Mesozoic mammal, but it grew up to be 40 to 60 centimeters, which is 16 to 20 inches long. I mean, wow. That's not huge, but that's over a foot. Yeah, that's almost, that's up to two feet. That's, yeah, close to two feet. So, I mean, you got a little, you know, what would that be? Medium, smallish badger sized? Yeah. Monotreme, which is good to note, fairly large for modern monotremes. That's, you know, that's a big, that'd be a hefty platypus. Yeah. <laughs> At that size. So that's a big monotreme. This was the earliest, but there were other monotremes during this time. Tienolophus trusilari is also known from this time. There's only four specimens known, also partial lower jaw bones with teeth. So not a lot of monotreme material. One of the interesting things, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but it's not in Australia, is in the Paleocene, which we'll get to in a little bit. In Argentina, there are platypus fossils known. Oh, interesting. So monotremes, even though they started in Australia and ended up being in Australia, they did not remain in Australia, but they did not survive anywhere else. Or at least right, right. They had the a moment for, for a bit, they were yeah. widespread. They, they had that wild time where they went out. Uh, <laughs> on spring break. <laughs> it's uh, the monotremes most likely arised in the early or the late Jurassic or early Cretaceous, but the genetic studies actually suggest that they probably arose in the Triassic. We don't have any fossils to confirm, but they probably had much earlier starts than the fossils we found in the Cretaceous. Right, right. That's typical. Yeah. We do find the earliest significant bird fossil, a primitive flying bird. It's one of the enantiorithines, which we've talked about before yes there's a episode yeah there you go and there's also a news where these came up i believe where i think it was one of the amber ones Yeah, they've come up a couple times yeah one of these little birds was found a little leg bone found in queensland about 110 million years ago so we do have some recognizable birds and then pollen records we've already talked about that this episode cool pollen records from the late cretaceous show that something interesting uh we do have angiosperms, and some of the first are the nothophagus, which are known as uh, southern beaches sometimes. The evidence from this pollen actually shows that the flora in Australia either originated in the Austro-Antarctic region, basically Australia and Antarctica, or started in uh, Antarctica and entered Australia. So most of the stuff came from that area. Interesting. So they're sharing plants. This is a a, a a broad region of these similar plants that, of course, Antarctica would eventually lose. And now the dinosaurs. Okay. So 
there's only about 20 named species of dinosaurs in Australia. <laughs> all from the Cretaceous, mostly fragments. We know that they were doing well here because we have a large variety and the environment was, was... So, I mean, like, we know that they were there. They just didn't preserve very well. So Interesting. Well, I know they had some small ornithopods. They did. They had the small ornithopods, which were very, very common throughout the Australian landscape at this time, which was shared with some other continents. But we already talked about one of them. Another one was the Luvi Corsor. One fossil they found was most likely a juvenile, about four feet long. Uh, they estimate from one other bone that adults probably got to be like 10 feet long, which is small yeah. <laughs> for dinosaurs. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a large, small ornithopod. Uh, <laughs> so there was actually a number of, there's a, there's a few others that I'm sure, and I'm sure there are others that still have yet to be named, but these little dinosaurs were running around two-legged herbivores. You actually get a number of ankylosaurs, but they're small. They're, they're pretty tiny. Tiny armored tank dinosaurs. You have Minmi and Kunbarosaurus, and Minmi was only about 10 feet long. Yeah, these are very small. Also a very small dinosaur name. Yeah, right? Minmi. It's a it's a cute name. So you have small ornithopods, small ankylosaurs. You do get some large herbivores. We have some long-necked sauropods. Decent size, but not big for sauropods. Uh, Savannosaurus is about 49 feet long, 15 meters. Moderate. Big, but not big for a sauropod. Diamantinosaurus is another 49, 52 foot long, you know, so 15, 16 meters. Uh, there's also Quintanotitan and Ostrosaurus. So not only fragmentary remains, but also smaller. Nothing, smaller. nothing, you know, huge sauropods, huge theropods, things like that. No, these are so far. These are the biggest dinosaurs that are known of in Australia. We have one Iguanodontid, which are the Iguanodon dinosaurs, some of the most successful groups of dinosaurs ever. They have those little thumb spikes and were in the ever-so-accurate film Dinosaur from Disney. <laughs> Mutabarasaurus is probably the most famous dinosaur in Australia because it's also the most complete known dinosaur from skeletal material. So they know this one the best. And it was it was about 26 feet long. So, I mean, that's 8 meters. That's not small for an Iguanodontid. No, that's pretty good. And a, and a well-known dinosaur. That's a name that you'll hear fairly commonly among dinosaur circles. And a lot of these, even though we only have fragments, are important because these are some of the only glimpses we have into the dinosaurs of what was eastern Gondwana. Because the rest of them are under ice. Indeed, indeed. And then there are some theropods, some predators. Uh, we have Rapator, who is a, a megaraptorid, which is a, a group of questionable connections to theropods, a group of predatory dinosaurs, and it's... Its placement on the, the tree right now is not necessarily clear. And it's known from one left hand bone, one of the one of the digits, one of the little phalanges. You have Kukuru, who is a Manoraptora, probably two, three meters in length, and it has a, a few leg bones. And the largest predator in Australia, Australovenator, who is another Megaraptorid, and is a whopping... 20 feet long. Wow. <laughs> like chasing down those Mutaburosaurus. I wonder why there were, I wonder why there weren't giants in Australia. I'm not in sure. In the time of the dinosaurs. I don't know the answer to this. This one, and this one wasn't even like a beefy predator. It was actually known as the, the, uh, 
I think they called it the Australian cheetah of the night. Like it was, it was very oh interesting, sleek and felt and gracile and lengthy limbed for probably fast chases. But it's still the largest predatory dinosaur known from Australia. Interesting. Not a ton of dinosaur record down there. I just mentioned a vast majority of the dinosaurs known from Australia. <laughs> they had a wide variety, but not a great record. So maybe someday we'll find more. So now we wrap up the Cretaceous. We wrap up the Mesozoic. We enter the Cenozoic. Age of mammals. Finally. Lots of stuff dies. And we begin at 66 million years ago into the Paleogene. This is around the time that the rift between Antarctica and Australia widens. It starts to form the Southern Ocean that's there. Shallow seas are still covering part of Australia, but now in the Southern Reach. Volcanoes still erupting. Uh, Tasmania is also having its own volcanism at this time. The Indian Plate and Australian Plate are likely to have fused at this time. So they oh, were so separate. not the continents, not the continents, not the India plates. and Australia, the plates that they're on. So it becomes the Indian plate and the Australian plate to the Indo-Australia plate. During this time, Australia is still pretty warm, temperate, humid, probably had rainforests widespread. Cool. During the Eocene, about 40 million years ago, we see it fully separate from Antarctica. And since this time, Australia and New Guinea have basically been completely isolated. Now that's cool. It's it's cool because that's not forty million years or so of separation, and before that, it was mostly connected to Antarctica, which wasn't doing it many favors. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> so from this point on, Australia is kind of on its own, and we start to see a trend in the weather change, in that it's getting more arid from this point on. And boy, oh boy, does that speed up when South America finally completely disconnects from Antarctica and the Drake Passage forms, which allows the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which completely surrounds Antarctica and vastly changes weather patterns in the world. It really dries things up. Yeah, we now see, it's looking familiar. Yo, so much for those rainforests. Those inland seas dry up. The lakes dry up. We get a lot more of those salt lakes that Australia is known for. And those, as you were saying, those long-established forests that have been we've been enjoying those deciduous forests give way to hard-leafed plants that are much better for the arid environment and during the tertiary about 55 million years ago we see marsupials in australia hooray so now we have some familiar faces ish kind of uh, <laughs> joining the monotremes <laughs> now many of these have very strong connections to south america and it is likely that marsupials actually started in the northwestern area of the world and moved down to South America and over, probably through Antarctica, over to Australia. Yes. So didn't start here. The earliest marsupials uh, are actually known from a fossil in Utah. Yeah, marsupials started out in North America. Uh, and, and that word we mentioned before, they've Australia has served as a refugium for many of the marsupials. The only marsupials that made it back up to the north were the possums that came up to North America during the Great American Biotic Interchange that we talked about in episode 43. Indeed. So it's it's one of the, again one of those weird stories where an animal 
had it starting somewhere else and now is known for a completely different area because they yes. didn't last. At least they didn't persist where they started. Now, one of the very interesting things at this time is that Australia also has some placental mammal fossils. What? Placental mammals being us, those who have placenta. Right. Everything that's not a marsupial or a monotreme today. Yeah. Those were found in Australia, or at least some fossils were found from them about 55 million years ago. The Condylarths are a group, uh, an informal group nowadays, actually, that were previously considered to be things related to ungulates, but is now kind of a, a, a mishmash. So that, that, that probably will be sorted out eventually. And this is one of the only areas where we've ever found that marsupials have outcompeted placentals. Interesting. So there were placentals. It's not just that placentals took over the rest of the world and marsupials were left in Australia. There were some down there. For a time, not in great numbers from the fossil record, but for a time, we're together. And this is actually one of the times the, the underdog went out. So woohoo. Go, Go marsupials. marsupials. Good on and you. And monotremes. Monotremes were there like rooting them on the background, I assume. And they helped. They And we were there too. <laughs> and now we enter the neogene. And we get into some things that we've already talked about because this is when a lot of the megafauna of Australia's fossil records show up. Yeah, we talked about those in episode 25. Absolutely. So things are still very dry during the last 5 million years. That's when the sand deserts and large salt lakes form. So since then, it's been pretty recognizable, at least more recognizable. And... Starting in the Miocene, we get those large megafauna. About 50,000 years ago is when the Narakort Caves starts collecting things. And if you want to learn about those, you can listen to that episode. Episode 32. And you get all those big famous ones, the Dipododon, the Zygomaturus, the, the Thylacoleo, and Giniornis. But there also are some others that did not collect in the caves. Kangaroos and stuff at this point. At, Absolutely, you know, familiar marsupials that we would have, we would see today. Procotodon, which was the big six foot tall kangaroo with a single large toe. We do have some others that didn't make it in the caves that I thought were worth throwing in there. We have Zaglosis and Echidna. Was it a long beak echidna that was a meter long? Yeah, that's their big echidna. It was huge. A largest monotreme for the Good record. Good on you. There Good you go. on you, got, got up to a meter, monotremes. We have Dromornis, which is another thunderbird like Ginny Ornis, but had a giant beak like the terror birds. A big axe beak. Yeah. The forest racids that we mentioned in our episode bird. 37.5. There you go. <laughs> this one was 9.8 feet tall, so three Ooh. meters. So this was a Ooh. big predatory bird. Uh, some, sometimes this group is called the Demon Ducks. That's, if any part of this world is going to have Demon Ducks, demon it's going to be Australia. We have uh, a couple of cool reptiles. We have another big snake, the Bluff Downs Giant Python, which got up to 33 feet long, which is one of the larger fossil snakes. We have Miolania, which is a big land turtle. Yep. And considering that modern days Australia does not have large tortoises, this was a good stand-in. It's a stem turtle that had horns and a long armored tail. Yeah, they were crazy looking. The horns made its head up to two feet wide. <laughs> <laughs> One of the old names for 
uh, at least one species of Myelania is Ninjemis. Yep, yep. The Ninja Turtle. Yep. <laughs> and this one could be up to eight feet long. So we're talking two and a half meters. And then we have Queen Kana, which was uh, a group of the, the Mekosukian crocodilians that were terrestrial crocodiles. So these are some of those running, long-legged, ziphodont compressed, serrated teeth. And some of them very, got very big. recent. This isn't yes. like those crocodiliforms we talked about in episode mm-hmm. two. These could have been interacting with people, depending on how things timed out. And some of them got up to like 10 feet long. Not huge, uh, but most of them could get up to around that length. One partial specimen may have gotten up to 20 feet. Cool. And then that brings us to the Quaternary, 2.6 million years ago to today. We have placental animals making their way back in. Even before we got there, bats and rodents can actually be found pretty reliably in the fossil record here during this time. So they make their way back over. Yeah, those, those make their way everywhere. And then history continues until we get to today. And we introduce back to the beginning of the episode. Then we introduce all these other wonderful animals like cane toads and dingoes and house cats and rabbits. Yeah. And we wipe out the thylacines and yeah. Endanger the quals. Good times. Who says that place to see megafaunal extinction stopped? <laughs> and that's Australia. A very unique place with a very unique history and a very interesting fossil record. Sure is. That's, it's, it's a fun tour. It's always fascinating to get to hear how... Because we, we get so used to picturing place, parts of the world the way that we know them today. Right, the Australian outback and and the the Great Barrier Reef and all the landmarks and features that we have today, but to go through time and see when it was glaciated and when it was rainforests and when it was polarish temperate and when it had dinosaurs, like it's just the 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 history held in any particular landmass is fascinating. Well, it's the fossil version of this used to all be farmland. You know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this, this used to be the bowling alley. <laughs> Listeners, do you have a favorite Australian prehistoric creature? I know what mine oh, is. Yes. Will didn't even mention it, the jerk. <laughs> Wolnambi well, we Cortensis. We mentioned it last time. We did. We mentioned it. I think we probably mentioned it twice. Episode yeah. three and episode 32. The big I didn't... snake. I didn't want to just rehash Naracourt Caves scene for scene. So I, I tried to. Fair, fair. In, But I didn't want to go. Because we, we covered them pretty well. I actually re-listened to that episode for this episode. Because it's been a while since we did that one. Well, before we wrap it up, there is one more thing to mention. Indeed, there is. We have a patron question. And today's question is from Allison. And she writes, I was wondering how dinosaur trackways get dated. I assume it has something to do with the layers of rock it is found in, but if it's anything more salacious than that, I'd love to know. And so, David, I was hoping you could help us with an answer for that. Uh, the answer is, at, at least as far as I know, it is not more salacious than that. Dinosaur yeah. trackways are dated more or less the same way that any fossils are dated. That you can Well, most fossils are dated. That if you <laughs> find them in a particular rock layer a layer of sediment, any datable material in that layer will give you the age of the stuff in that layer. Even better if you can get datable materials above and below that layer. 
because then you get a, a wonderful little bracket. Uh, volcanic ash layers are really good for that. So yeah, dinosaur trackways are, are you can't typically date them directly. So you can't date, you know, uh, typically they're not going to be formed in materials that you can get datable materials. You need certain types of elements, as Will mentioned uh, in the dating of those Australian zircons. Mm-hmm. But if you can find something associated, then you can date that. Now, some trackways are used as index fossils. Yeah, they are. Which is cool that you can... We've talked about index fossils, that these are fossils that are common enough but restricted to a certain time range that you can say, if you found this fossil, you know pretty much what section of the time scale you're in. And it's rare for trackways to to be really good for this. Uh, But there are some things like worm burrows that in some places and at some times serve as index fossils. So sometimes your trackway, your your trace fossil, can be your dating method. Now, because the the answer there is straightforward, Allison also said, <laughs> or you could just talk about those crazy sand dunes in Nebraska. So, sure, briefly, there are these crazy sand dunes in Nebraska. I assume what she's talking about are the sand hills, which is this All region... Right. This, this is a region that covers like a quarter of Nebraska is covered in these huge, sometimes huge sand dunes that can be as much as 300 to 400 feet tall and 20 miles long. Just these ridiculous features that are really cool. They're actually really cool, I think, because they're mostly formed within the last several thousand years. Wow during more desert-like conditions. But these days, they've been covered up in prairie and are now partially stabilized by the grass and vegetation growing on them. Ooh, cool. So Erosion the dunes, blockers. Yeah, the dunes are no longer shifting and forming and reforming. They're pretty stable. But it means that you get these crazy hills that are terrible for farmland because it's all sandy soil. <laughs> so and and but it, it they also trap groundwater so you get all these lakes and rivers and stuff it's this really cool landscape that's sort of this side effect of very recent geological history there uh, which we humans mostly use uh, for cattle ranching i like those kind of things because it's it's one of those quirks of going to different parts of a country or world that you don't typically think about but it's kind of like I didn't know red clay was not common when I was growing up in Georgia. <laughs> that yeah, I was just used to if you dig down more than a few inches or a foot, you're going to hit this thick, gooey, gummy red clay. That's that's what the ground looks like, silly. And I love that in Nebraska, it's like, yeah, if you dig down, then you hit sand. Yeah, you're sandy, you're sandy hills. <laughs> and that's... I love those little things. It's just that it tells you, it's telling you something about the geology, whether you realize it or not, which is very cool. So there you go, Allison. Two for the price of one. (laughs) Thank you very much for your submission. And with that, we're going to wrap it up here. If you want to know more about any particular thing that was mentioned, as usual, let us know. Feel free to send your questions our way, or as David mentioned, if you have any favorites from the Australian history that you'd like to hear about. Once again, 
want to thank Nils for suggesting this topic. And thanks to our new patrons. And thanks to all of our listeners, as always. Keep your ear out for the, the Q&A episode that will be coming out later on. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. In a fortnight, as One always. Fortnight. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Something Australian. I'll yeah, say I, something Australian here. Yeah, good day doesn't work for going away. I had the Dumb and Dumber reference and the Crocodile Dundee reference, and that's it. That's my whole <laughs> repertoire of Australian stuff. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.